Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante. And if you remember the last episode of this podcast, we left Dante in precarious straits. He was falling down a hill. He had come to this place where he saw the sun rising up over a hill. He tried to start climbing it, kind of, maybe climbing it. He'd been balked by beasts, three beasts, a leopard, a lion, and then this she-wolf that seems to really, really go after him, this she-wolf, and he's falling back down toward the dark wood, this place where he woke up in the middle of our life's journey, this scary place where he woke up all by himself, and as he falls down, stumbles down the slope, suddenly there is a mysterious, barely visible presence in the long silence. And we're going to pick it up right there. Dante says to this person, this thing, this shade, this shadow, this miserere on me, have mercy on me. And then the present speaks. Not a man, he replied, though I once was a man and my parents were Lombards, born with Mantua as their homeland. I was born subulio, Although it was late, and I lived in Rome under good Augustus in the period of the false and lying gods. I was a poet and sang of that just son of Anchises who came from Troy after proud Ilium was burned up. But you, why are you going back to all that sorrow? Why aren't you climbing this delightful mountain which is the source and cause of every joy? Wait, are you Virgil, the great fount that opens out into a big expanse of language? I bowed my head in shame when I answered him. O glory and light of all the other poets, let my long studies and great love pay off all that I've done ever since I searched inside your volume. You were my master, you were my author. I got the beautiful style from you that has won me such honor. Look at the beast that has made me turn back. Save me from her, famous sage, for she makes my veins and pulse quiver. You must commit to another road, he answered when he saw me start to cry. If you want to get out of this savage place, the beast that makes you wail doesn't let anyone get by that way. She will set upon you until she kills you. We're going to stop right there. I'm going to have to make a confession first. I have recorded this episode of this podcast four times now. This is the fifth, and I keep erasing it. Why? Because I've tried to do the whole passage from the minute Virgil appears all the way to the end of the first canto. And what happened is the episodes for Walking with Dante just kept getting bigger and bigger, 40 minutes, 45 minutes. And I kept thinking, oh, I'm sorry for anyone listening to this. There's just too much information here. And I realized I had violated my own rule. That is that I was going to walk through Dante at my own pace. And given that I had said that, that was my rule. Why was my sudden need to hurry? So I'm going to stop right here, just in the initial conversation between Virgil and Dante. Let's go all the way back. Yes, this is Virgil, Publius Virgilius Mauro, or at least a poetic representation of him. Publius Virgilius Mauro is a great Roman poet, the author of 
The Unfinished, Epic, The Aeneid, as well as other poems. We'll get to those other poems later in the comedy. He is, for Dante, as he says, a complete source of language, as if, as if Virgil is just this unbelievable master. Think about this. A poet has been met by another poet in this dreary, terrible place, falling back toward a wood. The only way a poet can be saved is with another poet. Think about what would happen to you. Let's say, whatever your career is, that you're in a really bad place and all of a sudden in front of you appears an apparition of someone who is a major figure in your field. Let's say you're an architect and all of a sudden I am pay appears out of a void and out of a long silence in front of you and says, you know, hey, I'm going to get you out of this. Don't worry. <laughs> or let's say you're a novelist. I haven't ever written a novel, but I can tell you who would freak me out if I met him. Let's say that I was walking along and Henry James appeared to me. Henry James, for God's sake, the, the <laughs> for me, the greatest novelist that ever was. Oh my gosh, I would freak out. I would... And, and what if Henry James said to me, you know what, I can get you out of this mess. <laughs> it's, I'm laughing because there's something that's slightly ludicrous here. And I don't mean that Dante thinks it's ludicrous. I just mean the situation is so fraught. It's so big. Here's a, a, a middling poet, Dante, a middling poet before he wrote the comedy, who is starting out on this giant walk across the universe, and all of a sudden he encounters a great poet, a poet who has survived antiquity, Vir Virgil. Oh my gosh. Let's go back and look at how Virgil introduces himself. Not a man, he replied. I promise not to do the funny voices now. Not a man, he replied, though I once was a man. There's a little play of words there in medieval Italian. I'm going to skip over that, forget it, but just say that he says, not a man, though I once was a man. And if you'll notice, Virgil talks around himself without ever naming himself. This is a rhetorical strategy that is endemic to the comedy. It's going to practically become epidemic in the comedy. And uh, it's called periphrasis, or he speaks periphrastically. Periphrasis is a fusion of two Greek words to mean to declare around or a declaration around the circumference of something. In other words, indirect speech or circumlocution. It's if you speak spoke and you didn't actually say what you were speaking about. Let's say, let's go back to my great novelistic hero and say that I encountered the 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 author who had created Isabel Archer and who had lived at a as a deeply closeted gay man having escaped the United States and settled in Great Britain where he could ride around in the back of Edith Wharton's car. <laughs> Okay, I've gone all the way around Henry James. It's a long way around. I've gone all the way around Henry James without actually saying the words Henry James. That's kind of what's happening here. Why? Why is paraphrasis a rhetorical strategy? Well, there's several reasons. One of the reasons is it's going to kind of be a test. It's a test to see how well-read you are. Do you know who this would be? Do you know who wrote about the son of Anchises? That is Aeneas. We'll get to that. About Troy and Ilium being burned up, Troy being burned up. Do, do you know who this would be? And if you're a learned person, you're going to know. Now, listen, I'm an American, so I'm going to become very impatient with paraphrastic phrasing. I'm not only that, I'm a modern American. I'm going to become really impatient with it. But it is a medieval rhetorical strategy that kind of connects learned readers to each other. 
back to Virgil. Not a man, though I once was a man. In other words, he's not a living man. He's not a he's not a human anymore. He's now a shade. He's dead. He's a spirit. My parents were Lombards, both with Mantua as their homeland. Maybe. This is the first little bit of quibble. Virgil was actually born about 30 miles outside of Mantua. He was born in um, Cisalpine Gaul, a pup piece of the Roman Empire that had been settled by Celts and was slowly being absorbed into the Roman Empire. During Virgil's lifetime, it becomes part of the Roman Empire. It's just more like a protectorate when Virgil is born. So he's not actually born in Mantua. He's born about 30, minutes, 30 miles away. It'd be like saying, um, no offense, but it'd be like saying, I'm from Dallas. And it would be like if I said, uh, oh, I was born uh, in Fort Worth. Well, not really, I was born in Dallas. Or even better, if, you know, you, you are from, you, let's say you're from Naperville, Illinois, and you said, I was born in Chicago. Well, not really. You were born outside of Chicago. You Are you trying to pad your resume? And the answer may be yes, because of the next phrase. I was born sub-Julio, and it jumps out because it's a Latin phrase in the middle of the medieval Italian. Sub-Julio, under Julius. Let's back up and look at that for a minute. Publius Virgilius Maro, the poet Virgil, was born in 70 BCE, before Common Era BCE. Julius, at that moment, was barely qualified for the Roman Senate. Virgil was 26 when Julius Caesar, who had now become Caesar, was assassinated by Brutus and, you know, the whole Shakespearean tragedy in 44 BC. So Caesar was not in power. Julius Caesar was not in power when Virgil was born. I should say that by the time Julius died, Virgil had not even begun the major works of his life. So, I was born sub-Julio sounds a little bit padded out in some way. I was born sub-Julio, though it was late, and I lived in Rome under good Augustus in the period of the false and lying gods. That's going to become more important next time. But it's uh, So, I'm going to jump over why Virgil would say that his gods were false and lying until the next episode and just jump to the next phrase. I was a poet. And here I want to really pause for a second. I was a poet. The word poet jumps out in the poem for many reasons. One, because of a certain medieval interpretive theory, Neoplatonism. Neoplatonists were philosophers who were attempting to uh, what to to balance Judeo-Christian thought with Plato, with Platonic thought, and so they were reading everything in this wild attempt to kind of synthesize a grand philosophical statement that is both Judeo-Christian and Platonic. They're a major, major medieval interpretive school, and. These people had seen the Aeneid, Virgil's great epic, as something very specific. Let me back up and just talk about the Aeneid for a minute. The Aeneid is the story of the founding of Rome and the burning of Troy. Well, in the other way around, the burning of Troy and then the founding of Rome by Aeneas. If you remember your Homer, and you don't have to, if you remember your Homer, the Iliad, Homer's a Greek. The Greeks are the heroes of the Iliad. They're the ones with the wooden horse who get it in the gates of Troy, who eventually put those dastardly Trojans to rout. It's, of course, going to be, from Homer's perspective, the Greeks are the heroes. 
Virgil's perspective is the opposite. His perspective in the Aeneid is that the Trojans are the heroes. It's a little overstated and a little bit too easy to say, but let's just say the Trojans are the heroes and it's the dastardly Greeks who do them in. In fact, Dante's going to follow Virgil down this path throughout the comedy and by and large, the Greeks are going to be the dastardly 'er ne'er-do-wells and the Trojans are going to be the noble, tragic figures whose cities were burned up. Your proud Ilium was burned up proud Ilium, so justifiably burned up. There's a little bit of fudging there, a nuance. Proud Ilium was burned out, and yet Aeneas escapes and ends up on the Italian peninsula and founds Rome. Why is this important? It's important for Dante because the founding of Rome means the founding ultimately of the papacy and of the church itself. So all of that is very important to Dante. Okay, back to the Neoplatonists. The Neoplatonists that this story in the Aeneid was actually the story of the soul's progress to perfection. It's not a story, it's not an epic about the founding of Rome. It's instead a story about what the soul goes through towards its greater and greater perfection. And that it is incomplete, Virgil left it incomplete at his death, that it is incomplete is just more to say that the soul has much more to grow from just this moment where it kind of comes into itself, into its new homeland, Rome. You'll notice that Dante pushes back against all of that. If Dante were a Neoplatonist, Virgil would say in the poem, I was a philosopher because he wrote this epic that is the philosophy of the soul. But Virgil doesn't. He said, I'm a poet, which is what Dante is, thereby connecting them deeply. And in fact, this term poet, this word poet, is going to occur 30 times in the course of the comedy. Why is that important? Because 30 is a multiple of three, because Christians think about the Trinity, because three is the number of the Godhead. 30 is one off of 33, which is an even more perfect number, because 30 is close to 33, and so it's close to being even more perfect and closer to God all of that, and you'll say, so what? So a word occurs 30 times. Listen, the more you read the comedy, you more the more you realize this is really important, that, you know, doves appear three times, and Jason and the Argonauts appear three times, and this word occurs 27 times, and this word occurs 33 times. All, all of that suggests that Dante is working this thing out in ways that are almost unimaginable to us mere mortals. Working this poem out so that it is so incredibly structured that certain words carry out a kind of Christian significance of multiples of three for the Trinity, like here, 30 times of a poet. So for Virgil to say, I was a poet, and saying of that just son of Anchises, that's Aeneas, who came from Troy after Proud Ilium was burned up, is is labeling himself as something that's very close to Dante. And then Virgil makes a mistake. And this is what I think is important. But why are you going back to all that sorrow down there, Virgil says, where the, the, the wood is where Dante woke up? That uh, Why are you going back to time? Why aren't you climbing this delightful mountain, which is the source and cause of every joy? Dear Virgil, in Dante's world, you're wrong. This mountain can't be the source and cause of every joy. In Dante's world, that could only be God. And that Virgil identifies this mountain as the source and cause of every joy is just like that problem with Subulio. It's making Virgil's character nuanced. Let me explain this for just a second. 
For hundreds of years, Virgil has been interpreted as the allegory of human reasoning in the comedy. That is, Virgil is the best that humans can do under their own steam. He, he represents kind of reason in its fullest extent. And most Dante scholars still accept a version of this. I, just to be honest, do not. I think Virgil is a fallible poet who is leading another fallible poet and fallible human being through the known universe. Virgil has got all of his own faults, blind spots, hesitations, irritations, quibblings. He's got his own character in tow with him. He's not an allegory of human reason. In fact, here we see Dante's humanism on full display. It's not that Virgil is an unreliable guy. Don't make this black and white. It's that Virgil is a nuanced guide. Listen, it would be like, let me go back to Henry James. It would be like if... <laughs> If I met Henry James as my guide, and he came along with all the things he comes along with, with being in the closet, which would drive me as a gay man insane, with his prodigious appetites, you know, James had to eat practically every 30 minutes to maintain that bulk, it, his, his irritations, his petulance, his refusal to state outright what he wants, what if I had that Henry James as my guide? The great novelists, the novels who change the way novels get written. What if that person, with all of his quirks and foibles and, and follies, came along to be my guide? That's the way I read the comedy. Virgil is a nuanced and difficult figure throughout the comedy itself, in the same way that Dante is. And that he's padding his resume a bit, Subulio, and that he's not Understanding what is the source of joy and cause of every joy. This mountain? No, 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 not in Christian theology. That, that all happens immediately with Virgil, says to me that he's not an unreliable guide, he's a nuanced guide, complete with his own failings. Dante says, wait, are you Virgil the great fount that opens up into the big expanse of language or words or speaking something you know you're it you're the you're the flow of language itself let me just say that this opens up a big issue in the poem after all publius virgilius maro is a historical figure he lived he wrote a poem so here we have a historical figure inside of a poetic landscape. We are blurring the lines between fiction and reality very strongly right here. Now listen, of course, medievals didn't hold those lines the same way we do, but still, we're blurring those lines incredibly by putting a historical figure here. It would be, it would be as if you wrote a novel and you stuck Abraham Lincoln in it, or you stuck George Washington into it. The claims between fiction and reality start to get wobbly. And while, again, medievals didn't hold this line between fiction and reality the same way we do, believe me, this is going to come back to haunt the poem, especially when we get down to the sins of fraud. Because you know who are the biggest fraudsters. Writers who make things up. Poets who make things up. But for now, let's just say this is setting up some problems here. This historical figure with all of his foibles, with all of his irritations, with all of his genius. And Dante himself, a difficult pilgrim. Okay. Oh, glory in light of all other poets, let my long studies and great love pay off. 
all that I've done ever since I searched inside your volume, and Don uses a very loaded word here, volume. He only uses this word volume for one other book, which is the Bible. So clearly, Virgil's works are uh, super important to Dante. You are my master. You are my author, my autore, my authority, the source of how I write. You're it. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine meeting this person who is fundamental to who you are as an artist? Let's say you're an actor or a musician. Let's say you're a musician and a singer, and suddenly you meet Maria Callas, who appears out of nowhere to you. Or let's say you're a painter, and there's Jackson Pollock, and complete with all his drunken, weird insanity. What would that make you feel like? What questions would you want to ask? And you and you think I'm 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 in I'm in the presence of somebody who changed the way I, as a creative artist, work. He said I got the beautiful style from you that has won me such honor. Lo bello stilo. We're gonna come back to this in a future episode. I'm gonna hold that. But just I got the beautiful style from you. Wow, that has won me such honor. And then I just want to point one more thing out to you. Look at the internal landscape that happens. Dante says, Look at the beast that made me turn back. Save me from her famous age, for she makes my veins and pulse quiver. Quiver. Okay, that's the first bit. Quiver. You must un- you must commit to another road, Virgil answered when you suddenly start to cry. Cry. Second word. If you want to get out of this place, the beast that makes you wail, third word, doesn't let anyone get by that way. She will set upon you until she kills you. Look at that progression. Quiver cry, wail. It's the same progression in the medieval Italian. Look at how that works, how we are developing an emotional landscape that deepens and goes further into the pilgrim. There's a lot of talk amongst scholars that medievalists didn't share the same notion we have about internal space. And that may be the case, emotional, internal, heartfelt space. That may be the case, But here we at least see a progression of emotions, quiver, cry, wail, that indicates an interiority or a deepening emotional response to what's going on. First Dante's quivering in his pulse, then he's starting to cry, and by the the time Virgil finishes, he's wailing. So his despair is becoming greater as Virgil speaks. Now that, right there, (laughs) if we were in a graduate class together, I'd ask you to write me a three-page paper about why Dante's despair deepens in the face of Virgil, this sage who is going to save him. How is that possible? If you know anything about the comedy, you know that Virgil is Dante's great guide in this long poem. But you should also know that Virgil is not Dante's only guide. He is Dante's first guide of four. There will ultimately be four guides over the course of this poem. Virgil will play out through the longest bit of the poem of any other character except the pilgrim himself. But that said, he is Dante's guide, the first, and they're going to set off. But before they set off, Virgil's going to do something absolutely astounding. He's going to predict the future. He's not only going to predict the future about what the journey will be like, although he will do that, he's going to predict the future of Italy. But for that, I'm going to hold till the next episode because I'm walking under my own steam slowly (laughs) through the comedy. 
I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast. I hope you'll rate it. I hope you'll come back and listen to more. The next episode is absolutely mind-boggling. The passage that when Virgil starts to speak is crazy and mind-boggling. I'm not going to reread this passage today. Instead, I'm going to hold this passage and the next one until a future episode when I read the whole first canto all over again. So for now, let's just leave it that Dante meets the shade. It's Virgil. It's Dante, the pilgrim's poet and author. He gave Dante that beautiful style. And Virgil says, hey, we got to go another way. So check back next time for the next episode of Walking with Dante, and we will start that other way.